in a world where everyone knows everything. <laughs> yeah, right. One dad stands below everyone and yells, I know nothing. Please welcome. Please welcome. This is the Dad Who Knows Nothing podcast. All right, everybody, this is the Dad Who Knows Nothing podcast. Today I have with me Kim Hamer. And Kim has a very emotional story regarding her husband and getting sick with cancer and passing away. Why I wanted to have Kim on the podcast was because out of this horrible situation came her life's work. And that's helping businesses and others to deal with individuals that are going through having loved ones that have cancer, maybe unfortunately, even if they pass away because of cancer. And we're all have difficulty, I think, knowing what to say. And Kim, and in a business arena, makes it even harder because you still have to succeed and still have to do things. And so Kim's main goal here is to help pay forward the support and kindness she got uh, while helping businesses, you know, be able to succeed while also helping to support their employees that may be dealing with these things. So Kim, so happy to have you with us today. Oh, thank you. It's so great to be here. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. So Kim, I know you probably have told this story a lot of times, uh, probably hundreds of times, uh, but can you, t can you take us back to, to what got you into a hundred acts of love. That's the name of your, of your book, the name of your company, your website. Tell us about the situation and, and where that sprang from. Sure. So, um, my husband who was an athlete played basketball in college and, um, always took care of his body. We were sort of the, the stupidly stereotypical organic eating family was diagnosed with stage four large B-cell lymphoma. It was a super aggressive um, lymphoma. We were originally treating, and I think you'll appreciate this being a husband, we were, at first we were treating it with ibuprofen and cough syrup because those were the symptoms that were showing up. Um, and then when he said he wasn't feeling well, like the good wife that I was, I was like, he said he was having trouble breathing. And I was like, oh, here, just take some of my asthma medicine. So we tried treating it with that at first as well. Um, we went to the doctor and it was just like you would picture it on TV, you know, the doctor after doing an exam of my husband and, and doing an x-ray, the doctor came into the room, laced his fingers together, put them on the exam table and looked at my husband and said, you know, you have cancer. Um, we have to figure out, we have to do a biopsy to find out what kind it is. It is serious enough that we need to start working on this right now. And that was Friday at 3 p.m. Um, we made three phone calls that day. We called his parents, we called my parents, and my husband called his boss. And um, the next seven months were very difficult, you know, for us and our family. Um, but something I noticed during that time was that some, some of our friends knew exactly what to do and were so incredibly helpful. And a lot of our friends, I'm going to say the majority of our friends didn't know what to do or what to say. And sometimes they, you know, they kind of stumbled along and figured it out. And sometimes, you know, we actually, we actually lost some friendships. So fast forward seven months later, my husband is, is um, unentangled from cancer and we are trying to put our life back together, our marriage back together, you know, are just kind of stumbling forward. 
And um, as we're doing that, a little less than two years later, the cancer came back again, stage four, and then four months after that, he died. Our kids at the time were 12, nine, and seven. And um, again, our community kind of, you know, really came forward and, and supported us. And I think there's, a, there's an idea out there that, you know, I must be an extremely strong or courageous individual to get through and navigate my husband's death. But really what I often tell people, it is the, the hundreds and hundreds of things that people did for us during that time. And, at, you know, when he had cancer and after he died, that allowed me to have the courage to stand up again. Um, one of my favorite sayings is, you know, your backup is up against, it's great that your backup is up against the wall because it's a good sport. And, you know, all the things that people did for us became that wall for myself and allowed me to grieve and to, you know, try to put our lives back together in a very different manner after my husband died. So I am um, a couple years after that, I sat down and wrote a book called 100 Acts of Love, A Girlfriend's Guide to Loving Your Friends Through Cancer or Loss. And I wrote it for the jokers I wrote it for myself because had I been my friend, I wouldn't have known what to do. I would have been just like all those other people. I would have said the wrong things. I, you know, there's a phrase we'll talk about later that is the worst phrase that we say, but it's the most common phrase you hear. And I would have said that. I would have wondered why I wasn't being called and, and being asked to help. And so I wanted people to know, one, that, that you can help. And two, how simple and easy it is to help. There's this idea that you have to, if you're going to sign up to do meals, you need to bring meals for the next 10 years. And, and it's, it's, it's not that intense. It's really the simple and easy things that you can do. Um, that really make a difference. Fast forward, I go back into the HR field um, and I notice the same thing at work that I noticed that happened in our private lives. You know, employee, employees, employers don't know what to do when an employee is diagnosed with cancer or is dealing with a partner who's diagnosed with cancer. There's sort of this massive panic of what do you talk about? How do you do it? A lot of times the employee who's dealing with the diagnosis or with their partner who's being diagnosed feels, you know, unsupported. But on the other side, there's a team who wants to support them. There's a manager who wants to support them. There's HR who wants to support them. But no one's really sure how to have those um, compassionate and also equally productive conversations to, to move forward. And so that's, you know, I'm an HR executive and that was sort of my sweet spot. So that's how the two came together. And that's how this consultancy business was launched. Yeah. So, I mean, I can understand where there would be a need for that because, um, as you mentioned, you know, and as we kind of touched on before, it's difficult when you're close and there's a close relationship. It's, it's even harder. I think when you're not really sure and there's not, there's only yeah. a business relationship, right. And still got to get things done, but also want to be supportive. And I think, and I think to your point, most, if you ask most HR people, most business leaders, and they hear about it, their immediate reaction is, oh, how can we support them? But then it's, it's to your point, right? It's the translating into those day-by-day -day things that are providing that support. So I'm sure there's a, a real need and you can provide that to your clients. So let's just talk about it from a personal standpoint, okay? Sure. And maybe, maybe it's better to start with what not to say. So you're okay. a friend of someone who has either their significant other has cancer, just found out, or they've been dealing with it with a little bit, or maybe it's your close friend. What are some of the worst things to say? You said it was one of the most common things people say. So, yes. so give it to us. What is it? 
So here it is audience, and you said it before, if you need anything, let me know, or some version of that. And on the surface, it feels like you are being so helpful. It really does. It feels like, okay, I'm in there and you really do mean anything, but there's three specific reasons why it's not a great thing to say. One, what is anything? Right. I mean, during the first diagnosis, I had a toddler. So did that mean that you were willing to take your beautiful brand new BMW and pick up my vomiting toddler from preschool? Or did that mean that you were willing to run out and get a gallon of milk when I needed it? Right. Anything is just too big. The second reason it's not helpful is that you are now asking me, the person who's in crisis, to take apart my day, my very complicated, you know, average, but complicated day, and to find one thing you might be willing to do. And what I found during my experience and when I've talked to widows and, and people with cancer is it's really hard to figure out how someone can help you because two reasons. One, because it's just hard to figure out. It's just, you know, and two, because even if you do figure it out, then you have to have the courage to ask somebody to do it. And that's number, that's the third reason why it's not a great offer is because this person, let's say they do figure out the one thing. Let's say it is that. I need you to come read to my dying grandmother. Now, one, I have to sift through my memory and try to remember who said, and who said, if you need anything, let me know, which is a lot of people. Two, I then have to have the courage when I'm feeling so incredibly vulnerable to call you up, to ask you to do something and take a chance of hearing you go, ooh, okay, mm -hmm. do you need that today? Right, that rejection, and and when someone's in crisis, they cannot manage any more rejection. They're extremely vulnerable. So, whether you've said it, you know, you've said it in the workforce, you say it at home, you say it to your friends, you know. So you're asking the person who's in crisis to figure out what you meet, what what they need, and then to ask you. And so it's not it's not a fantastic phrase. What I often tell people to do is be figure out what you can do, one thing that you're willing to do and be specific and offer more than once. So that's the other piece too, is, you know, <laughs> when, I, when I speak, I ask people to raise their hands. How many of you are really good at giving help and hands go up? And I say, okay, keep your hand up if you're really good at receiving help. And in an audience of a hundred people, there's like two people put their hands up. We are not good at receiving help. And even in a crisis when we know we need help, it's really hard to say yes to the, to the support. Um, so when you're really specific about what you're willing to do and you offer more than once, that person will one, take you seriously. And two, when that specific thing comes up, they're gonna remember and they're gonna call you. So that's, that's, the, that's the big one I tell people, just stay away from that phrase. Um, another one that people often do is it's, we, we sometimes call it the puppy, the puppy dog. How are you? They come up to you. They really want to know, but their eyes get really big. They put their hand on your shoulder or on, you know, the upper arm and they go, how are you? Right. And it's more of a female thing, but you know, guys will be like, Hey, how are you? You know? And so again, you're asking someone what, what you're saying to them is I want the juicy gossip. Tell me everything that's going on. And it's not particularly warming or caring. Um, it feels a little bit intrusive. So what I often say, if you really wanna know, and if you have the time, you can certainly check in, but try making it more specific. How are you right now? I was thinking about you today. How are you doing right now? How are you doing today?
How was that doctor's appointment yesterday? Right, be very, very specific because you, you can even tell in the voice when your friend says, hey, how you doing? Like we all do that, right? But when your friend says, you know, Kim, I saw this thing on TV and it made me think about what it must be like to be a widow. How are you doing with that right now? And then, it, you know, you're asking very specifically and you're leaning in and it makes me feel really heard. And really, that's the name of the game. That's the number one thing that you want the person who's dealing with this crisis to feel. You want them to feel like they're being heard, like their, their journey is being witnessed. And we all can relate to this because we call our friends up when something funny happens to us or something bad happens to us. We want them, we want someone to witness what just happened to us. And so it's the same thing when there's a cancer diagnosis. So how does someone, if they are supposed to be specific, is it just them looking at stuff that they are able to do and offering that to the individual? Because sometimes I think maybe the fear is, is that I don't really know what they need. And right. so is it a matter of like, for your situation, you had kids. So if, if, if I was a parent and I knew that I went to, my kid went to the same school as your kid, then that's a way that I could delve in and say, Hey, if you ever need me to pick up your, your kid from school and I pick up mine, right. tell me, can I pick up the yes. kid? Can I pick up, you know, your son or daughter? Uh, but outside of that, I mean, are there other ways that you can kind of determine what specific things they may need? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I run through this. So you just sit down and think about your day, right? I mean, when we think about what's the first thing we do when we get out of bed, most of us go use the bathroom. Is there toilet paper in the bathroom in the house? Is there a toothbrush? Are there, are there clean towels? Is there shampoo, right? Maybe some of us immediately look at our cell phone. Has that cell phone bill been paid? Is, it, is the phone being charged? Do they need a new charger? And I know sometimes these things feel very weird. You know, you, it feels weird to go up to your coworker and go, so is your toilet, you know, do you have enough toilet paper in the house? Um, but there are even things at work when you think about your coworkers. Some coworkers are always putting together agendas for meetings, right? And if they're dealing with cancer or their loved one has cancer, it may just feel like too much to come up with the agenda. So it's, hey, can I take over doing the agenda for you? or it's helping with a project. You know, I'd love to chip in and help with this project over the next two weeks because I know you're gonna be out a lot. So it's, it's, I think what happens is people get fearful that they're gonna offer the wrong thing. And fear plays a huge role in our inability to really connect with our coworkers. And I often say it is so much better to get it, to offer and get it wrong than to not offer at all. Because again, every time you're offering, what you're saying to the person is, I care about you. I want to do something to help. And depending on your relationship and depending on where they are in their journey, they actually might even be able to say, hey, I don't need that help, but can you do this? And you're going to be thrilled. You're like, yes, I can do it. I'm so excited to be able to help in some way. Um, I think the other fear is that it feels like it's not enough. And it's not, it's never going to be enough because you can't cure cancer. You can't cure the, the, the illness. You can't bring someone back from the dead. And so that's, it's really us trying to manage our own personal powerlessness. I'm um, trying to accept it because what you do doesn't have to rock or change the world. It's the smallest little things combined with the small things that everyone else is doing that really make the journey, journey I'm not gonna say manageable, but make it feel 
I felt like I was in a nest. I felt like I was being, like, I felt like there were several different layers under myself and my children that we would have to fall through before we fell to the floor. And there's something very comforting about that. I knew we were going to be taken care of. Um, and I often believe that's why Art was really willing to, to go, was because he had this sense of the community's got them and they'll be okay. Um, so it's about being part of that special community by doing those small little acts that make the biggest difference. Wow, that's pretty powerful. So you mentioned a couple of things that we should say, and, and I want to focus in on friend. Anything else as a friend? So out of the workplace still as a friend, anything else we can say? Sure. I mean, you know, we often start with, I'm sorry. And that feels so like, because we use it so often, it doesn't feel powerful. But saying, I'm so sorry, this is part of your journey. Like this, it's really okay to say this sucks. Like, you know, it's okay to call it for what it is. Um, one of the most powerful things that was said to me by a few friends was, I, they, were, they were speechless. They were like, I, I don't even know what to say. And that's really powerful because the experience that someone you care about is going through does deserve speechlessness. It is a horrible situation, a scary situation, a terrifying situation, and it's okay to be speechless. Um, so, you know, when you first get that news, it is okay to, to not know what to say and to voice that you don't know what to say. And if you've said something like, if you need anything, let me know, it is perfectly okay and even more wonderful to go back and to say, oh my gosh, I had no idea what I said was so, so silly and so wrong. I'm so sorry. Here's what I want to do for you. Or I just didn't know what to say. And I just felt the need to say something. You know, but I'm here for you if you need your kid, if you need to your kids get a ride back from school after school. I'm happy to do it. I think that the 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 silence thing is so true because I think that's another thing that we're afraid of is just sitting in yes. silence. And but in a way, when you're when you're silent and they're silent, you're almost still together dealing with the gravity of of that news. And sometimes we're so we're so in such a hurry to to speak that we can't, yes. we can't be silent. And sometimes yes. that's, that's the best thing. Just holding the hand and being silent can be the best thing. Yes. Nice. Yeah. So there was a, um, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to tell a quick story. Yeah, um, sure. We were, we were picking up the, our school, the kids, the school, the kids were at, they did these kind of all school camping trips and um, my youngest and my middle daughter who was supposed to stay overnight decided to come home. So I went to the school to pick up the kids and we were waiting for the bus. And I just, it was a month after my husband had died and I just started to cry, just sob. And this woman, her name is Marta Todd. And um, she just came and sat next to me. And then she said, she kind of inched her way over and, and then her, I was sitting on steps. And so her, her knee was touching my shoulder and it was just so comforting. She didn't say anything to me. She just sat with me while I was sobbing. And then after I was done, we, it was done. She gave me this wonderful, big, big hug, but that's the power of silence. You know, there's no fixing the grief. There is only witnessing and sitting in it with somebody. And it took a lot of courage on her part because most people want to fix it. They want to get a tissue. They want to, you know, pat it. They want to tell you it'll be okay. But the most powerful thing to me was just sitting, having her, the courage she showed to sit with me while I was going through that in that moment. Yeah. What a great story. 
and the fact that you it sounds like you still know this individual and probably made a huge impact on your life and still continue to be a good relationship. So yes. what about what about I you know as a coworker? So now we're moving into the realm of business, right? You you have relationships with coworkers, some stronger than others, right? What what do you mm-hmm. what do you say to a coworker? Anything else? You can say all those same things. Um, you know, because I think one of the things that we make the mistake of, and I think COVID really kind of turned us on our heads on this, is we used to always be very like work is work, home is home. And some people were okay with kind of crossing the lines, but you were never really sure who was. And so you didn't really always want to, you know, broach, you know, cross that line. And now it's okay to talk about it. You can say, I'm so sorry, this is happening to you. You know, it makes me really sad. Um, and then the sit in the silence, you know, if, if you let the person with who's dealing with this cancer, just have a few minutes, they will either talk about it or they'll say thank you and turn around and go back to work. But either way, you're just giving them an, an opportunity to kind of figure out how they want to react. And then you take their lead. Um, and I think that's really important is just to acknowledge it. Ignoring it is the worst thing ever. It's basically saying, hey, no big deal. Like what you're going through is no big deal. And they also, for anyone who's dealing with this, they get that you're ignoring it, that you're uncomfortable. So they actually, you know, you actually lose respect in their eyes, which is something that we talk a lot about when I talk to people with cancer. Um, They lose respect for their friends because they haven't, they don't have the courage to say something to them. Um, and you know, we're at work, it's, and it, this all, of course, there's a lot of variables because it depends how you, what your relationship is with the employee. Are you the manager? Are you the coworker? Or, or is this your manager who, who is being, who has been diagnosed? It depends on how, on who knows and how many people know. And so there's, there's so many variables that occur in the workplace that need to be navigated carefully, um, that, that often and people often forget. And it could be when you acknowledge it and bring it up to your coworker that they may say, yeah, I don't really want to talk about it. Work is my escape. And this is where I can kind of forget about it for a few hours a day. And then that's okay. But you've acknowledged it. You've, you've shown that you're, you're concerned about them and uh, because everybody's going to be different with that. So what if you're a leader Exactly. and you're, and it's one Mm. of your employees uh, there, there, there's probably a little bit more that you should do um, as far as yes. providing that initial support. Yes. So um, one of the things that I did mention when the, the coworkers, ultimately, the team should be getting the lead from the manager on how to manage this situation. So what I work with, when I work with leaders, I work with them to really sit down. First of all, we have to talk about how they feel about cancer, because if they have cancer in their past, it can trigger, like it just brings them up memories and they can cause them to really do things that they're completely unaware of that they're doing that really affect the relationship they have with the employee who's going through this and also the team. So there's conversations that I coach the manager to have. The first one is with the employee and to understand what the employee wants. Does, does the employee want everybody to know? Does the employee want no one to know? How does the employee want this message? Is the employee, does the employee even know what their treatment is going to be like? You know, we, we assume cancer means that they're going to go bald, they're going to lose their face hair, they're going to get weak, they're going to lose a lot of weight, but that's a stereotype of what having cancer is. Like all stereotypes, there are some 
know, lightly based facts in it, but this is what we're sold in the media. So this is what we believe, but cancer is treated by surgery, by immunotherapy, by radiation, by chemo, and amazingly different kinds of chemo that have different kinds of side effects. So really, if the employee can tell you what their treatment plan is going to be, are they going to need to be out Thursdays and Fridays every week, right? So you can, the, the, the very important thing that managers need to do is gather a bunch of information from the employee or have HR do it, right? So that if they're more uh, comfortable talking to HR, so that you have a really good idea of, okay, this is, once we have all this information, then we can start developing a plan. And that work plan may be the employees taking FMLA is gonna be out for three months. Um, or that work plan may be, like I said, the employee is going to be out Thursdays and Fridays, or they're going to work half days on Wednesdays and go to treatment and maybe need Thursday off. Um, and the other piece of that conversation is, you know, really understanding, having those conversations with the employee and understanding what the employee wants. Um, I worked with a client and we had a conversation with the employee. The employee said, I don't want to have to tell people I have cancer. I'm okay with them knowing, but I don't want to tell them. And here are the things I don't want them to say. I don't want any intrusive conversations about what kind of cancer is it? And, you know, am I going to live? I don't want any of those conversations. Here's what I am willing to talk about. I'm willing to accept the love, happy to accept a meal. So the, by having conversations with the employee affected by cancer, we were able to outline, okay, team, this is how to talk to this person. And the team was relieved because they had some guardrails. Um, so, you know, helping the team engage is incredible because it increases employee engagement. It really helps with productivity because the team now knows what this person can and cannot do. And they really understand, okay, this is for four months. This is for six months. This may be for the full year. Um, and they, and then the employee knows how they're going to engage with the, with the team and the organization as a whole. So there's a lot of nuance to this, but the basis is, is having an initial conversation with the leader or even the HR team um, to lead them through a series of questions that provide you with information that allow, that, that will then predict or put, then you can put together a plan with how you're going to, how the team and the organization is going to react to this person or act, not even react, react to the person's cancer. Yeah. And I, and I imagine that there's should be a fair amount of documentation so that there's at least between the HR individual and uh, the employee uh, so that there can be those guardrails, right? And while you can communicate that to the team and so they're comfortable, you know, some of those conversations, while they may be difficult, in a way, it, it kind of helps create a plan. And when that plan's specific, I'm sure it, it helps everybody in that situation. So then- Exactly. I'm a leader, okay? And and I have someone mm -hmm. on my team that that is dealing with this and is a great worker. How do I- and I want to support them. How do I balance that with maybe what could be very high demands for getting work done? How do I balance right. the both? You know, because obviously for, you know, a short period of time, you may have the other team that may jump in, but if it's a long-term thing, it could potentially put it some additional weight on everybody else. And and that would be a tough conversation to bring up and actually complain about, right? If the cause yes. of that is, yeah. is someone having cancer. So how as a leader, do you kind of navigate that tricky situation? Yeah. So 
The first thing I find is very interesting. Leaders often have a very guilt, often have a response that they're not proud of. And when you have a key person come to you and tell you they have cancer, leaders' first thoughts are usually like, oh crap, what about that? You know, we're going to miss our KPIs this month. Right, right. And then they feel guilty because that's their first thought. And then they're like, oh my gosh, I'm a horrible person. But the reality is, as a manager, your responsibility, you are responsible for producing results. And so um, even if it's if it's for any, if if the effect of the team member's cancer is going to last for less than six weeks, yeah, just kind of bury your head and get it done. But if it's beyond six weeks, you need to have conversations with your employee. And so again, this this it doesn't matter how much they want to disclose, you do need to have a conversation with them about their work plan. So you've got all these projects on their plate and this person has all the projects on the plate and you need to figure out what they can and cannot do. And you need to continue to have this conversation because after the first chemo treatment, people might be like, hey, this is, I've got it. After the third chemo treatment, they may be like, yeah, remember I said I was going to take half a day on Thursday. Turns out I need all Thursday and half a day on Friday to recover. So it's this constant conversation of here's, here's what we have on our plate. Let's talk about what you can do. Let's talk about what you can't do. A couple things I always tell managers to keep in mind is one, your employee will want to, most employees will want to continue to work. We get our identity from working. And so what I see sometimes is managers take off the, the, the hardest projects, the ones that the employee is most engaged with and just takes them off their plate as a way of doing them a favor. When reality, what they're doing is they're causing the employee to be disengaged in the organization and they're teaching the team to not come to the manager and talk about any personal issues that might be going on because you will lose your favorite project. So that's that's often what happens. Um, and the other thing that we talk to managers about is just look these are these are these are not easy conversations, but you still are responsible for your KPIs. So you have to figure out how you're going to get them done. And what I find is managers feel like there's a there's you are you either empathetic or you're hard driving, right? And there's, there's no, there's no cross, but you know, it's a Venn diagram. There's that beautiful center in between where you can be extremely empathetic and be supportive. Um, and you can talk to the organization about what can we do for this person? Can we get them an Uber? Can we get them a, a, a share ride gift card so they don't have to worry about driving to and from treatment? Can we get them a meal plan so that they can have meals? Like as an organization, you can do things that are empath that are sympathetic and helpful. And you can also have these hard conversations about performance and, and, you know, not talking about, you know, you need to perform at, you know, at this high level, but you and the employee need to continue to have these conversations to meet performance because sometimes, sometimes you do have to let an employee go because they're just not able to work, work at the level that, that, that you and this person committed to, or that, that makes a difference on the team. Um, but you have to have the documentation for it. There's obviously all sorts of law, laws around this. Um, there's FMLA and there's ADA, which, you know, are very, very stringent about when you can let someone go who is dealing with, with this, but um, you have to be able to have those courageous conversations and your employee will thank you because they want guardrails. They want to please you. They want to do the work. They don't, most of them don't want to lose their job. Um, and they're terrified. They're terrified of losing their jobs. They might need it for the healthcare. They're worried about, they might need the income. 
Um, so keep in mind that the employee is also thinking like, I really, really want to work hard. And they're terrified that they're not going to be able to work as hard. So any type of conversation you can have that will put up guardrails is really helpful to both you and to them. Yeah, all great points. And, you know, sometimes I, I think courage is such a big factor in this because there's never been a situation where a tough conversation in business, if you just push it off, that the situation resolves itself. (laughs) It never works. It never never works. works. You have to have these conversations. If anything, (laughs) they just get tougher, right? Because now maybe there's more of a time crunch or, uh, you know, or it continues to be an issue and now it's a bigger problem. So got to have courage as a leader to have those discussions. So let's talk about if the worst scenario happens and let's say the employee has someone, it's their spouse, their significant other, or it's the employee themselves that has to experience and and ends up experiencing death. How do we manage that in the workplace as leaders? So there are two scenarios um, there. I think the first one, if it's the employee, um, I always, first of all, one of the things I, I really um, encourage HR teams or managers to do in the very beginning is if the employee is the one with cancer, find a contact person for that employee. Maybe it's the employee's partner, maybe it's a sister, maybe it's an uncle, whatever it is, because you don't want to be calling that employee, especially if you're off on FMLA, you don't want to be calling that employee and saying, hey, how are you doing? You want to be getting information from an outside source that will help you support them. Um, so hopefully you have that. Um, a lot of companies will, I was at an organization where they hired a bus and people all got on the bus and went to the service of this employee. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, but keep in mind that grief is not a one day thing. It's not a two day thing. It's not a three month thing. It's not even a year thing. Grief occurs random times when you least expect it and it hits hard. So having a plan of how you want to manage, if you're in the office, how are you going to manage the cubicle or the office of the employee? How are you going to manage getting, you know, pulling that, getting the personal stuff to the employee? I always recommend that if that if the that you that you hold even if it's a small team and you don't want anyone else hold your own memorial service, right? Because memorial services are not for the person who's died; they are for the family. But in a way, you know, some people consider work fam- family, and so it's really beautiful to just put together a suite. It doesn't have to be two hours long. It, can be 15 minutes, it can be 20 minutes, but it's a way to kind of close that gap, close that space, um, and to let the employees, uh, give the employees an opportunity to grieve. So you can hold your own memorial service, talk to the team about what's gonna happen with the stuff. Um, A lot of times team members want to, or companies really wanna support the family of the employee who died. So talk about how you as an organization are gonna do that. Um, I often remind people, look, coming in the first three months is great, but what happens in death is people come in immediately and they're all there. And then it's almost like, like a snap of a fingers, people disappear. So around the six month mark after there's a loss, there's not as much support and help. That's a great time for the employees to come in and the company to come in and say, hey, we're here to do X, Y, and Z for you. Um, If it's an employee who has lost a spouse, I think, you know, making sure that we have 
some comments of what to say and what not to say is very important. Um, and to understand that the employee's performance, especially as a leader, is not going to be what it used to be. And it may take six months to a year for them to get back to some type of high level productivity. Um, and really understanding what that looks like. And again, having those honest conversations with the employee. But I don't recommend that you have them in the first month. I recommend that you wait till eight weeks or the third month to sit down with them and say, okay, let's talk about your work plan for the next six months. Um, one of the things I noticed about myself going through grief, and I talked to widows about this, we have no idea how we are not performing. We have absolutely no idea. Our brains are incredible. Mush. We think we're doing really well, or, or we might have a sense that we're not doing as well, but we have no idea how poorly we are performing. And so do not expect the employee who's dealing with loss to be like, hey, you know what? I'm a little spacey today. I'm feeling unfocused. They're going to try. They're going to be unfocused. They're going to think, I got this. You know, but what often happens is, you know, at the end of one month, you look back and you go, I thought I was functioning, but you weren't functioning. At the end of three months, you look back at one month and you think, oh, I thought I was functioning, but I was not functioning. And that continues to happen. So you're going to have to have those also honest conversations with them, especially after the three month mark about their work. Yeah, all of those are really great, great suggestions and great ideas. And clearly you've been able to, uh, help your clients to do those things uh, when they've experienced that in their in their workplace. So this has been a really good conversation. I, I mean, I, I think that uh, it's a tough conversation for any of our listeners, for you yourself, who've had to have been in the middle of dealing with this. What's what's the one big great lesson you would want any of my listeners to, to take away from this episode? It's that you matter, you know, and I would not be here doing what I am doing if it wasn't for all those people who picked up my kids after school, who drove my husband to the cancer support center, my friend who left a joke on the voicemail every single Wednesday after my husband died that I didn't, that sometimes in the beginning, it was the only time I heard myself laugh, you know, after my husband died. I mean, it's, it's what you do really matters. So I really hope that people can walk through their fear and just show up, um, whether it's a coworker, you know, your neighbor, whatever it is, um, because I felt supported and loved and cared for. And although most people could not understand my experience, it was okay because I felt supported and loved and cared for. And that passed on to my children. You know, I have had the honor of watching them show up for their friends who've lost a parent or uh, at one point, um, um, one of my one of my my oldest son's high school friend or someone on the football team committed suicide and he the football players didn't know what to do. And he's like, here's what we're going to do, you know, and so he you know, it is it what you do is it this is this ripple effect on everybody around. Um, so that is the thing. I think I just really want people to know how much they matter. They really, really matter. And that one small act of love makes a huge difference. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. And certainly you've, you've uh, been able to experience that. And obviously the work that you're doing has helped 
others be able to do that and businesses to be able to support their employees. The book is called 100 Acts of Love. Uh, very powerful stuff that you've shared with us today, Kim. I appreciate you giving us a few moments of your time. So let's have courage, right? To do those little things, yes. be specific about what we can do for our friends, our coworkers that may be dealing with this and never think that you can't make an impact with a, with a small yes. act of love. So Absolutely. very nice. Thank you so much for joining Kim. This has been really nice. I appreciate you sharing your story with all of us and giving us all these great uh, tips on how to support our, our family and, and our coworkers. No worries. And if anyone wants to know, you know, I have on my website, a download, a free download of five things never to say to anybody with cancer. And not only do I include what to say instead, but I explain why they're not good things to say. So you can sort of get a hint about what other not good things to say. So you can go to 100actsoflove.com and that's the number 100 and backslash what not to say. No spaces, nothing in between, what not to say, and you'll get a free download of those incredible tips. And I, I just hope that people know, um, you know, it's okay to have a do-over. We, we've not been taught how to manage any of this. It's not like there's a book and it, well, now there is, but, <laughs> but it's not like, you know, this has been passed down from generations. We are all kind of fumbling along and um, fumbling, fumbling the way of just making the mistake of thinking that you matter. That's, that's, that's what I hope that people remember. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, we'll put that website in the show notes so that uh, our listeners can, can click right on it and get over there. So thanks again, Kim. This was a great Thank conversation. You. Appreciate um, all the great work that you're doing coming out of, uh, you know, such a sad scenario that you went through yourself with your husband. Appreciate your time and uh, sharing your story with all of us today. Oh, well, thank you so much for your interest. Really appreciate you. Thank you for joining us on our journey to learn about various topics. If you'd like to get in touch with the dad who knows nothing, connect with him at the dad who knows nothing on TikTok and Instagram or dad knows zero on Twitter. If you have a moment and you like this episode, drop us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Have a great day and enjoy your journey through this game called life. Thank <laughs> you.